We are this morning looking at um, Isaiah chapter 9, but we will be looking a bit at Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 together this morning. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one from us. Uh, In the row in front of you, there are a few uh, pew Bibles there. The English Standard Version is what we use, and we're happy for you to take one of those Bibles as your own if you don't own uh, your own Bible. Uh, We are... uh, happy to give that to you as a gift so that you have the Word of God. If you're looking in that Pew Bible, we're going to be in pages 536 and 537. The rest of you take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 8. And we are in the midst of our Advent series looking at the prophecies of the coming Messiah in the prophecy of Isaiah. We're reminded even as we think of Christ's first coming that we do so in view of his second coming, a bit of overlap there and some songs that we sang this morning. He comes the first time to save and the second time to bring judgment, but also to take those with him who are his own. Last week we looked at the prophecy of, uh, that's found in Isaiah chapter 7 uh, of the name Emmanuel, and uh, there's some overlap uh, in our Uh, passage this morning with that as well. Today, though, we move on to Isaiah 9 by way of Isaiah 8 and the prophecy that we typically look at in verses 6 and 7. But of course, we do need to get the context of this prophecy to properly understand it. So we're going to have quite a bit of Scripture reading this morning, so keep that in mind as I ask you if you're able to stand. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1 through Isaiah 9, 7. So it's quite a long passage. If you're able to, please stand with me. I'll read aloud as you follow along, Isaiah chapter 8, reading, uh, as I mentioned, from the ESV. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah the prophet writes, Then the Lord Yahweh said to me, so of course Isaiah speaking here, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will Get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, and to attest for me. And I went to the prophet, prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord Yahweh said to me, Call his name Mahershala Hashbaz, because he'll be embarrassed in kindergarten <laughs> when he has to write that out. Now, there is a meaning behind the name here, for the boy knows how to cry, before the boy knows how to cry, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord Yahweh spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it shall it will sweep on into Judah it will overflow and pass on reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land o emmanuel be broken you peoples and be shattered give ear all you far countries strap on your armor and be shattered strap on your armor and be shattered take counsel together but it will come to nothing Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. 
For the Lord Yahweh spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken up. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord Yahweh who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord Yahweh has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder The rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with uprightness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Yahweh of hosts will do this. You may be seated. That is the reading of God's word in both the New Testament earlier and the Old Testament this morning. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, we are humbled by what we read here this morning because we have seen the light if we are in Christ. We have been brought out of darkness and gloom into light and life. And Lord, you have done it. And we are thankful. And we who are in Christ here this morning call upon you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Give us more light this morning by your Spirit who inspired these truths in the original autographs so that we might live accordingly. If only 
as we rejoice in Christ and as we live our lives of rejoicing in Christ. And we worship you, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit this morning as we think on these things, as we study these things. And yet, Lord, it is possible and likely that there are those in our midst who do not know you, who are in rebellion against you, who are at enmity with you, Lord, who are your enemies and who are in darkness, and they need to see this light this morning. And so we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would shed the light of Christ upon their hearts, and they might turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. And Lord, that we might see people come to faith and that we might rejoice with them in this season of Advent, even as we look to your second Advent. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our services, and I pray that you would get me out of the way and continue to humble me. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What's in a name? Names carry meaning, and some of you have done the homework to know what your first and perhaps even your last name means. For instance, my name, Jason, means healer or helper. Um, but really, um, names in our day are more about uh, assigning um, uh, just a, a name to someone, a, a reference, not really, uh, is, especially in our culture, necessarily imbued with much meaning or what we think um, someone may be or might turn out to be. I know I've told you this before, but some of you have forgotten and others of you weren't here. My grandfather went by the name Sam, but his name was not Samuel. I have Italian street cred. My, dad's, my mom's dad's name was Salvatore Romano Crescenzi. The name Salvatore, of course, meaning Savior. And I guarantee you, him being born into a Roman Catholic family, there was meaning that was imbued in that name that was given to him. He was the third of uh, uh, seven who were born, or yeah, seven who were born in the United States. He's the fifth out of ten children. He's now with the Lord. He did come to faith in Christ. But it was a joy when I opened his memorial, uh, which I had the pleasure of preaching, to, to mention that his name means Savior because he knew his Savior and knows him now more that his faith has been turned to sight. Names mean something. They carry meaning. Of course, in Scripture times, names had significant meaning. And many times, as we saw in our Scripture reading this morning, God tells people what they are to name their children because of a significance to Israel. Last week, we saw the importance of the name Emmanuel, God with us. We see this week that <clears throat> the, the name that God tells Isaiah to name his son. And also in our passage today, we not only get a glimpse of another messianic prophecy, but also some names confirming the nature and identity of this Messiah, this chosen one. Alec Matier observes, quote, the book of Isaiah is noted for significant names both foreshadowing coming events and also embodying the word of the Lord, which we do see this morning in our passage. And it is the names that highlight this prophecy particularly that we look at together today. And just like last week, we are looking at the hope that is sure because God keeps his word. 
So here's the main point for you this morning. It's written for you on the back of your worship folder. If you're tuning, tuning in through the live stream, it's, it's been emailed to you. Hope for those in spiritual darkness is only found in the promises of a covenant-keeping God. Hope for those in spiritual darkness is only found in the promises of a covenant-keeping God. This morning, I want us to see four features of the Messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And just as with last week's, we are uh, looking at the con- context, the content, uh, the, the prophecy itself, and then the promise that is fulfilled in it. So uh, if you're newer to our church, I don't always use these four categories, but as we're walking through these Messianic prophecies, these fit well with what we're doing here. And so, first we need to see, as we've read this morning, the context of the prophecy. And as we continue in Isaiah's prophecy, we must now ask if anything has changed about the context of Isaiah's next obvious messianic prophecy. As we just saw in our reading, Isaiah predicts the eventual downfall of Judah to the captivity of Assyria. And and it's couched within a parallel prediction to the Emmanuel prophecy of chapter 7. You see some familiar names, speaking of names, from chapter 7 here in chapter 8 when the the Lord says in verse 8 of chapter 8 that because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice, and instead, basically is the point there, they rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, these these kings that were going to come and and seek to have um, Israel or Judah, actually, the the southern tribe, uh, uh, bandy together with them against the king of Assyria. He says, because that's where their hope is, rather than in me, remember um, uh, Ahaz didn't want to ask for a sign. So this is the ongoing consequences of that. Verse 7, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, the river Euphrates, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And now he's using all of these water metaphors to help them see what's going to happen. You didn't want to drink from the waters of peace of, of Shiloah. You wanted rather to trust in these pagan kings rather than trust in your God, fine. I will bring a mighty river against you, the king of Assyria. And notice how he puts it here. Uh, And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. That's their dwelling place. And it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And even in the consequences that um, God is bringing through the prophet Isaiah, he reminds them, O Emmanuel, God, even in the midst of this, is with you. And what is the purpose of this? Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. In other words, a, a double consequence here This is going to happen. You will be brought to humility because you have rejected your God. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. This reminds me of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth have gathered together to take counsel together against God and his anointed one, and God from heaven laughs at their attempts. Speak a word, but it will not stand 
for God is with us. Emmanuel. Even in the midst of the doling out of these consequences, God is with them. Young points out that just as in chapter 7 and verse 15 and 16, the infancy of the Messiah was made the measure of the time that Judah would suffer from her two adversaries. So here, the infancy of Mahershala Hashbaz, which is a name that you need to memorize and throw around at your Christmas parties to impress people, his infancy is made the measure of time that would be elapsed before the king of Assyria would devastate Damascus and Syria. In the length of time that it would take an infant to reach the age where he could stammer out My father and my mother, the Assyrian king, would come and devastate the two northern powers. And so, just as God is speaking of a sign in chapter 7 of Emmanuel, God with us, as the the sign of the Messiah, so now too in parallel, not in type, but in parallel, the birth of Isaiah's son is going to mark the consequence of Judah. This is a dark prophecy whose gloom hangs over Judah, and that is the language that is used here in this passage. As we see in 8.6, as we just read, it is due to their own sinfulness and the giving into consent, uh, giving into constant temptation of syncretism. You see, when Israel would ever... Um, try to uh, be a part of another nation in order to um, maybe not make the consequences of God so hard or to bandy together to fight other kings, it would always result in them worshiping idols. And so God knows this outcome and he says, you must be humbled yet again. And even the ones who walk faithfully with the Lord will have to endure the oppression of Assyria because of the sin of the nation, and it affects the whole nation. Look at verses uh, 16 through 17. Even as there is this, uh, to use the imagery here, overflow of consequences, as God puts it, that the river is going to flow to the neck. Look at verse 16. Bind up the testimony... Seal the teaching among my disciples, my followers. I will wait for the Lord Yahweh who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. The Lord offers comfort to them who wait on him and fear him rather than fearing the foreign kings. For the Lord will bring deliverance. And that deliverance comes in an eventual physical deliverance from Assyria, but also in the form of the coming Messiah. Chapter 9 and verse 1, as, as, um, as he's speaking even to these disciples, and he speaks of the gloom that is coming in the uh, exile. Verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He again uses this water metaphor to say, yet there is one who is coming from beyond the the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Where is Jesus from? From Galilee. 
He's from Galilee. Therefore, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. From the perspective of Isaiah, as these people are being told there is certain consequences, gloom, and darkness coming, there's also a light. They have seen that great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. Remember what the Gospel of John we've been studying together for the last decade, it seems. John chapter 1 and verse 1 and forward. What does John say? The light has come into the world. And that light was the light of men. There was a great light that shone in the darkness. Young summary again is helpful here. In places of darkness of calamity, the people saw the light of peace and blessedness. In the places of darkness and death, the light of life. In the places of darkness and ignorance, the light of knowledge. In the place of darkness of sin, the light of salvation. The darkness was a shadow of death, for it was deep and of death, such as could be removed only by a light of life. Therefore, the context of this prophecy continued from Isaiah 4 now into Isaiah 9 is this. You don't want to ask a sign from your God. He will give you a sign and now you will reap the consequences of of seeking to partner together with pagan nations and there will be darkness and gloom and yet there is always hope, especially for the remnant, those that believe in the midst of the unbelief. Just as Joshua and Caleb were in the uh, the believing spies, the, the, the two, the remnant out of the twelve. And this then leads us to the content of the prophecy proper in verses 6 through 7. Four. Four. For to us a child is born. A purpose clause here in line with the other purpose clauses we saw above. But this begins to bring who this is speaking of when it speaks of the yoke of his burden, etc. As we saw, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian." This is the prophecy of Messiah. Let's look at each piece. To us, a child is born. Who is the us? Well, certainly in some senses, it is the nation of Israel. But um, they, in some senses, uh, the majority of them reject him, as we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. But there is a remnant yet in Israel that believes But we know this is also to the world, as we shall see. For to us, a child is born. This builds on the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, which to remind us reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is simply the next step in Isaiah's prophecy of the one who is coming, the son. A child is born. And as with I, 
Isaiah 7, a, a, a son is also specified. A son is given. This is a human baby boy. But as we shall see in the prophecy, this is no mere human boy, but rather in space and time, the eternal Son of God will put on humanity and be a human son to a human virgin. And in the midst of gloom and darkness, as the impending um, exile comes, there is light and there is hope. There is one who is coming who will free us. And he is a child that is born, as any other child is born, a son. He is given to us. And then other descriptions are given here. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The idea here of, of shoulder in the original language is that of the upper part of the back, the nape of the neck. And I was listening to R.C. Sproul talk about this passage. He said you can't uh, almost uh, not think of Atlas and the world upon his shoulders as the old mythology goes. That is the picture, if you will, here. It is a large burden. It is the burden spoken of uh, uh, previously in verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. The upper part of the back, the nape of the neck, which government is this going to be? In one sense, as Matier points out, the burden is taken from their shoulders in verse 4 and placed on the shoulders of this one. Calvin says, quote, there is an indirect contrast between the government which the Redeemer bore on his shoulders and the staff of the shoulder which was just now mentioned, for it agrees as well and is not liable to any objections. He therefore shows that the Messiah will be different from indolent kings who leave off business and cares and live at their ease, for he will be able to bear their burden. Thus he asserts the superiority and grandeur of his government because by his own power Christ will obtain homage to himself and he will discharge his office not only with the tips of his fingers but with his full strength. With this, Jesus bears the burden of the world. That is the idea here in this government. This we also understand because the nature of God, of who he is and who Messiah will be from the perspective of this passage, that the government of the world he shall bear. There is coming a day when all will see and know that Christ is king. And in his first advent, he has borne that burden at the cross. And in the second, he comes to vindicate his name as he becomes the one who is king over all, for all to see. And now we get into this list of names that we can't almost help but hear uh, Handel's Messiah playing in our minds as we hear these descriptions. The first is Wonderful Counselor. And those two should go together. Some translations have wonderful comma counselor, but it seems best to understand wonderful as attached to counselor, adjectival as an adjective, wonderful counselor. Young points out that the adjective is not just 
wonderful, but that the Messiah himself will be a wonder. And as we think about that, that wondering, it was the problem of the Jewish people of the day that they would not accept that this was the God-man, truly God and truly man. He is a wonder, and it takes spiritual insight, it takes God imparting that to us to understand it. He is not just a wonder or wonderful, but in what sense is he wonderful? He is a wonderful counselor, which implies wisdom, wisdom. Sproul again uh, pointed out the fact that typically there was a person who sat just below the king who was the king's advisor. We think of Joseph with Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Um, This king needs no advisor because he is wisdom itself, Proverbs chapter 8. He is wisdom personified. Young says, to sit upon the throne of David as Messianic king requires wisdom such as no mere man possesses, which is why it's important to connect wonderful counselor to mighty God. If this wonderful counselor cannot be chalked up as mere man, just as a son of any sort, then what kind of son must he be? He is deity. He is the eternal son. Young draws out the implication of this fact that the Son is both human and here described as deity, stating, quote, Isaiah here brings out an important contrast. By means of the words child and is born, he has called attention to the Messiah's humanity. But by the phrase mighty God, we are brought face to face with Messiah's deity. The interpretation is strengthened by the word wonder in the first name. He is a wonder And in light of this strong designation, we may well expect that in the second name also, the prophet is attributing deity to the Messiah. In the reading of this to the the Jews of Isaiah's day, this would have blown their minds. Who is this? And in line with Messianic prophecies previous to this, they're always on the lookout. For the seed of Genesis 3, the seed of Abraham, the, um, the seed of David, the, the, the root of Jesse, the branch, the lion, whose scepter shall not fail, the king. And so this just expands and, and blossoms in their mind as more and more evidence and more description of who this one would be. He is a wonderful counselor, but he is mighty God. Everlasting Father. What are we to do with this? Perhaps we can translate it Father of Eternity. If in the Trinity the Son is eternally the Son and the Father is eternally the Father... And this is the nature of their eternal relations. In what sense is the Son the eternal Father or the Father of eternity? By what, uh, what, what is meant by this? I do think that the second way of rendering it is better as Father of eternity. For he is the one who brings eternity to his people via his vicarious, penal, and substitutionary atonement. Another, another way to say it is he is the Father of those who have been granted eternal life because he has brought it to them. 
The duration of his people and his kingdom is because of what he has won for them in his sacrifice. So he is the father of those who are his children in eternal life. And then he is prince of peace. Prince of peace. This, of course, speaks of the reconciliation of the same. The enemies of God become his children. Those who are at enmity with God become friends of God. Eternal life is granted to those who are his, but they are also granted forgiveness of sins and given the righteousness of Christ. He's the prince of peace because he reconciles sinners to a holy God and thus also reconciles all things to himself. To which Paul bursts forth and prays, to him be the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And in light of this, in light of all of these things, look at verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This government of peace will have no end. The government on his shoulders is an ever-expanding rule, and as we said, it becomes worldwide. Now, how are we to understand this? Because it seems like we're not there yet. And it's true, we aren't in one sense. In another sense, this ever-expanding kingdom of peace is happening in our midst. There's a spiritual aspect to this. What is the first part of our salvation, if you will? Our justification is that we are made right standing with God by virtue of Christ's perfect life, his death, and resurrection. And therefore, we are brought into a spiritual kingdom that is ever-expanding. How so? Well, Jesus told his disciples, and therefore us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have taught you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. That ever-expanding kingdom is the gospel kingdom that expands around the world. The invisible church of Christ, the invisible body of Christ that is here in a local representation and yet everywhere where there are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an ever-expanding kingdom, but yet there is a reality to this kingdom that is not yet. We call this in theology already not yet. It's very sophisticated already we are in the spiritual kingdom, but the not yet is the physical kingdom which we await, where those who would not believe that Christ is king will see that he is king. Then we see as well, he's on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Again, the throne of David and already not yet, uh, Christ sits at the right hand of God, the, the work finished, ruling and reigning over his people spiritually in this day until he, his enemies would be made his footstool and he rules and reigns over the world so that all can see. Notice with justice and with righteousness from the time of his birth and forevermore. 
Certainly, if we think about this aspect, this is where we see such a gap. Because we know that justice and righteousness does not reign in total in our day. But it does in the hearts of believers. For we have been given the justice of Christ. What he received on the cross in our behalf is justice. And we have been given thus his righteousness as well. We are a depiction of that justice and righteousness. And where do we depict that? In our lives and as we proclaim the good news. And yet, remember the already, not yet, there will come a time where justice and righteousness will be totally in place, totally seen. Remember, as I said, he comes the first time to save, the second time he comes in judgment. And there, final justice and righteousness will be seen. And notice he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is what Isaiah is putting on display here, the eternal plan of the triune God. That which is from eternity past and the triune uh, God will see it accomplished. Nothing will thwart it. God does not, God is not just a few steps ahead of us. God is sovereign over all things. He is omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful. He has ordained all things to the end of his, for his glory and for the good of those who are called his. And all this information is meant to engender hope in a people who fear the incoming reality of their captivity due to the sinfulness in their day. And so it is for those who are in captivity in our day. Those of us who are in Christ should gain comfort from these truths, that, for this is our God and Savior. We have seen this fulfilled in a spiritual sense in our lives and await the reality of it as we uh, wait for it to be realized from the captivity of this world and the release from the sinful state of these bodies into glorified ones. But to those who are not in Christ, I want you to hear the hope of being able to be set free from the captivity of your sin. In Christ, you no longer have to say yes to sin. You're able to say yes to Christ and to his righteousness. My call, therefore, to you is, as you sit in darkness and gloom this morning, in the darkness and gloom of your sin and in coming condemnation, that you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. Well, having seen the context and content of this prophecy, we must now ask where in the biblical storyline is this fulfilled? Uh, take your Bibles and make a right-hand turn to Luke chapter 2. This is our New Testament scripture reading this morning, at least in part. We see, thirdly, the fulfillment of the prophecy. The fulfillment of the prophecy. Look again in verses 8 and forward. Where is this Isaiah prophecy fulfilled? Luke 2, 8, In the same region there were shepherds out on the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Notice the parallels here. The, the overflow of this to the world, which will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Deliverer, who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Where is this prophecy fulfilled? I think we see the very similar language here in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. What is the good news unto you? For to us a child is born. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. You see all the connections here with the seed of Genesis 3, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. He is three things. He is a Savior, He is Christ, and He is Lord. Don't overlook that. A Savior, <laughs> Emmanuel, God is with us. You shall call him his name Jesus, for, for he will save his people from their sins. <clears throat> Excuse me, Yeshua, Joshua, in the old. He is Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, the one who Israel has been awaiting. And he is the Lord, Yahweh, God. So much information here about the nature of Jesus. Every single aspect of this gets disputed by those in Jesus' day and in our day. But those of us in Christ, we take it by faith in God and His Word. The Pharisees disputed His pedigree, His Messiahship, His relation to God, His deity. And all of these things are disputed in our day as well. Interestingly, Bach in his Luke commentary points out that there is nowhere else in the New Testament that these three titles, Savior, Christ, and Lord, appear together, but that, quote, all three titles appear fre frequently in the Old Testament, which supplies important background to their meaning here. This one who came, whose birth we celebrate at this time of year, is the one who is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Each of these titles reminds us of what Isaiah's prophecy prophecy displays. He is the Savior, the Prince of Peace, who reconciles mankind to God. And in fact, that's what the angels proclaim here, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace amongst those with whom He is pleased. It's not about peace amongst the people. It's more about peace between God and man, God and mankind. Peace that reconciles mankind to God. Mankind who is an enmity with God is reconciled through the one who saves through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Those who are God's enemies can be brought into his family, an eternal family, the father of eternity, as it says in Isaiah 9. Christ, 
He is Christ. He is Messiah. He is the promised one from the pages of Genesis to the promises of David. He is the wonderful counselor, the king of heaven and earth. And he is the Lord, the mighty God. In the days of Jesus, it was said, Caesar is Lord. And that's what they were to proclaim. And the Bible says, no, there is one Lord and one Christ. His name is Jesus. You see, in the time of Caesar, there was the Pax Romana, the Pax Romana, the, 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 the peace of Rome. <laughs> if you consider oppression peace, then yes, it was peace. It was not true peace. So here bursting on the scene is the Isaiah prophecy come to be, not as one who sits on a throne, but one who is born in a manger. Not as one who is proclaimed to kings, but is proclaimed to shepherds by angels. One who is Christ the Lord. There is none like him. And as we think on his first advent, we must think lastly about the hope. That's the fourth point this morning, the hope contained within the prophecy. As we view this prophecy as one that was yet to be fulfilled from Isaiah's day, as one that is fulfilled in the birth of Christ, we can see several aspects of hope contained within it. From the perspective of Isaiah's day, there is a time where the captivity of Israel will end, but to that end, the hope that they have is not focused on the messianic fulfillment. Messiah comes, and for the most part, they do not accept him. There is a remnant still, even in the days of Jesus, that believes in him. They rather crucify him along with the Roman government. But in that is the spiritual hope. Again, God ordains all things. By whose hand was Christ crucified? By uh, Israel, by Pilate, by Rome. And it says to do whatever your hand had foreordained in Acts. Christ has come and inaugurated the kingdom spiritually. Through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, he has set the spiritually captive free and secured a right relationship with God and an eternal home with him. That is our hope, believers in Jesus Christ. And yet, we still await the coming kingdom where all will know the triune God and see that Christ Jesus is Lord and King. And when all the wrongs, dear ones, listen, to me, when all the wrongs are made right, true justice, full justice comes in that moment, and righteousness shall reign because righteousness is Christ and he shall reign. When Jesus comes the first time, he comes to save people from their sin, from every tribe, tongue, and nation seeing that overflow into all the world. But when he comes the second time, it will be to receive his people to himself and also to judge the living and the dead. So for the believer, there is hope as we consider his first advent and look forward to his second. But for those who do not know Christ, I want to tell you, judgment is sure. And you need to look to the reason for his first coming and trust him so that when he comes again, you can have the confidence that those of us who are in Christ have, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So my call to you, if you're not in Christ, is to turn from your sin, to trust in him today. Would you pray with me?
Lord, it is with joy that those of us who are in Christ hope in what is certain because of what you have done, because of what has been fulfilled in you, Lord Jesus, we have a hope of certainty in what is to come. Let us rejoice in that, Lord, not only looking back to your first coming, but looking forward to your second coming. Every prophecy that was made about your first coming came true. Every prophecy that is made about your second coming will come true, and we believe that. Let us rejoice in it. And let us, with that kind of heart, go forth and proclaim the good news to those around us who are lost in darkness and gloom. May we truly show them the light of the world, even as we have opportunity because of the season we're in to talk about Christ. And I do pray, Lord, that if there are those in our midst who do not know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And we know you can do that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.